Thank you, Stephen, for sharing that powerful passage that is such a good bridge into what we want to talk about today from the Revelation, which is how the Father is constantly revealing himself to us through the Son. And, I mean, you only have to read, you don't have to read very far into the Gospels to uh, get a very clear picture of just how significant that is to the heart of the Father. So thank you for that passage. Today we're continuing our series on the lion's roar. The word of God that has been spoken, that's been revealed to John to give to us, that will conquer fear and shatter complacency. And if you listen to the text that was just read, you heard from the very beginning that the message was always calling people to a transformed life. The message was never going to be about just something you, you believed up here that never manifested itself. Well, we've been looking at Revelation chapter 1, this first view of Yeshua, and we've broken it down, whether you realized it or not, into seven parts, and I'm going to try to just give you a quick outline of what those are today as we move into chapter 2. We're going to do a lot of Bible study today. The first is we took a look at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. We talked about the genitive objective, the genitive subjective, whether it's from him or of him, and the answer is yes. It's all about him. It's all from him. He is the reality that we're supposed to focus on. It's not a parody of a genre of literature. It's a prophecy of genius and the genesis of life that comes to us through Yeshua, the one who is the beginning and the end. Secondly, we looked at the authorship of the Revelation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we saw the Holy Spirit uh, revealed as the seven spirits that are before the throne. We're gonna, we've talked about the one who was and who is and who is to come. And I love that because if something comes from somebody who was and is and is to come, at what point in our life and our existence does it not have relevance? I mean, if it comes from the one who is the past, the present, and the future, then every word that we read has relevance not only to our future, but our past, our present, and our future. We talked about the apostle of the Revelation, how the Lord chose John as the one to whom the prophecy would be given so that he would send it to the seven churches. And we started talking about the significance of sending it to the seven churches. We're going to continue that today. But we began to introduce us to the idea that we need to be seeing John not only as an apostle, but also as a Hebrew prophet, a fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance that are ours as a blessing in Messiah. We showed how the appointed time of the revelation was on the day of the Lord. We, we compared it to Ezekiel, how Ezekiel, 25 years into Judah's first exile, received a revelation from the Lord on the day of atonement, 25 years into Judah's first exile in a jubilee year. And now we see how John received revelation from the Lord at the end of the exile, the, the, the restoration of God's house, 25 years into Judah's second exile again on the day of the Lord, on the day of atonement. That focused our thoughts on the anointed high priest of the revelation because we first see what John sees, which is Yeshua in four white priestly garments worn by the high priest on the day of atonement. And we see him walking among the lampstands, which are the churches, preparing his people for the coming day. 
And then last week we started talking about the audience of the Revelation, the church, the called out assembly. Whether you use the Hebrew word kahal, whether you use the, the Greek word ekklesia or the English word the church, we are talking about the body of Christ of which he is the head. And all things are connected to him. Everything we're shown is helpful information, but ultimately it shows us his heart. And we see him walking among the lampstands, the churches, and we see really just how much he cares about us. And if you don't hear anything else today, I hope that that is affirmed in your heart and soul that this one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands is the one who firmly has his grip on you. The seventh that we haven't talked about is what I call the amens of the revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. So shall it be. Amen. I love that word. When we were at Camp Yeshua, I told you that we, one night we had the kids, I wanted to engage them, and I told them we're going to do a standing amen, because amen has the same root, and so whenever they heard something that spoke to them, I didn't want them just to say amen, I wanted them to stand up and point, so that's where I'm at. See, this whole book is telling us where we're going to stand, and it's calling us to stand. That is the revelation. So today, my question for you is, is the amen of Revelation your confession? Do you stand where Yeshua stands? Do you stand on the revelation of who he is and what he's promised? Is that your conviction? Because I promise you, that is the confession of your hope. There is nothing coming in the future that is more important than you knowing exactly where you stand and knowing where you amen. And there's nothing more important than knowing who Yeshua is. Will you pray with me? Oh, Abba Father. You who gave the revelation to Yeshua to give to John to give to us, would you now, oh Lord, I already know the answer to that, so let me just thank you now for sending a spirit of wisdom and discernment and knowledge to opening our hearts and minds to see Yeshua for who he is and to hear the word of the Lord, that the word of the Lord would become our confession that it would become our amen this day. Be with us, Lord. Open our hearts and minds to receive from you. I pray this in Yeshua's mighty name and all those who stand on it said, amen. Okay, so like I said, we're going to dive in today. We're going to eventually uh, get into the seven letters to the seven churches, but we're going to begin that study today uh, with a little bit of some background study. Uh, you'll remember that uh, we started this series really when we started a series in the book of Jude that I called the prelude to the revelation, but there's one more fast background study we need to do to help us receive what we're about to read uh, that was sent to us by our great eternal high priest. The writer of Hebrews has penned one of the best companion books for the Revelation, and, and I want to call your attention very quickly to its primary focus. 
Uh, first of all, before we do that, though, let me remind you what Paul said in Corinthians where he says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And then jumping down to verse 12, he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And I'm, I'm going to be sharing these passages because one of the things I want to accomplish with you today is to get you to see an absolute consistency in the revelation, not just the revelation of the book of Revelation, but the revelation of the scriptures we have been given in Jude and Corinthians and also in Hebrews. Paul is concerned about the Corinthian believers and us that if we fail to pay attention to our spiritual forefathers, we will suffer the same fate as many of them did who did not retain their confession. They did not retain their trust in God. See, Paul isn't worried about God's end of the bargain. He's concerned about the foolish narcissism of men that arrogantly concludes that the mistakes of the past couldn't possibly happen to me. I mean, we are a movement that saw that firsthand, how dangerous that thought. Well, we can fall in love with the Torah. We can understand the laws of God. We won't make those same legalistic mistakes. We won't dive into judgmentalism. But we did. I'm sorry, we did. It is a narcissistic heart that says what happened in the past won't happen to me. In fact, that's what Yeshua said of that generation, that because they had had so much uh, manifestation of the signs and wonders that he was going to hold that generation responsible, guilty for all of the generations before them because they'd been given more. Now, folks, I want you to think about something. If that's what he said to them about what they had, we not only have what they have in the testimony of scriptures, we have the rest of the New Testament. We have the history of what the gospel did throughout Asia, throughout the Greek world, throughout the Roman world. We have the testimony of inspired scripture. So how much more should we be focused on making sure we don't make that mistake? The writer of Hebrews wants us to pay attention to Yeshua, Hebrews 12, 2, fix our eyes on Yeshua, the author and the perfecter of our faith. When we come to the book of Hebrews, we come to a book that has one focus, fix your eyes on Yeshua. That's the same message as the Revelation. After all of the descriptions, all of the events, all of the, the ultimately, the revelation of Yeshua is to cause you to lift your eyes above all of it and keep focused on him. Why? So that we will not lose heart and give up and fall away. My friends, faith is the victory only when Yeshua is the focus. You ought to write that down. Faith is the victory only when Yeshua is the focus. You get your eyes off Yeshua, you're in trouble. And just like the revelation of Jesus Christ, that focus on him as our great Kohen Hagadol, our great high priest, not a great high priest, our great high priest. Let me read a few quick excerpts from Hebrews. Chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. You want to hear what God's saying? Focus on the Son. 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. You're going to continue to see a consistency. We got it in John chapter 1, through whom all things were made. The word through which everything that has come, nothing has come into being that has come into being if it didn't come through Yeshua, the word of God. This is a consistent message. This isn't one author in the New Testament, you know, kind of going off on a tangent, saying something. It is, it is repeated over and over and over again. Yeshua is the one through whom everything that has come into being came into being. Pretty good reason to keep your focus on him. Amen? And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, another consistent thread, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. The rest of the chapter details how Jesus is a greater steward of God's house, greater even than Moses, and he launches in to remind us that he is able to minister on our behalf because he has made he was made like us and yet was without sin all of this is stated in the context of a warning not to fall away in light of the assurance of the power of our high priestly savior to keep us because he saved us that's what makes the revelation so powerful this book that just, you can't take your eyes off it. It's kind of, once you get into this book, it's kind of engrossing, isn't it? Because it's just, wow, these amazing descriptions and seeing Yeshua and knowing what's going on. But the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter three. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. I'm just gonna stop. I gotta insert some stuff. Partakers. Well, that writer of Hebrews, he's off in left field. He's just talking. No, that's exactly what John said. I, John, your fellow brother, your servant, a fellow partaker in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the perseverance. The thread is consistent. Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua, the apostle, the sent one, and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by justice so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, i.e. by the son. Everything that was happening with Moses in the house of God was a foretaste a prototype of what the son of God would come and do. But Christ as a, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as they did in the day of trial in the wilderness. Same, same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians, my friends, this message today is about hearing the word of the Lord. John chapter 1, we have seen the Lord. John chapter 2 and 3, we are now going to hear the word of the Lord to the churches. Jumping down to verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you uh, having an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In Hebrews 8, chapter verse 1, probably my favorite verse in the whole text. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not men. 
This is amazing. Because this is the same message as the revelation we're seeing. It is the revelation of Yeshua as the high priest who is the reason we are victors, not victims. He, it is because of who he is and what he has done that I don't come to this book in fear. I come to this book in faith and in focus, not on myself, but on him. Amen? And that's where I find my strength. That's where I find my hope. Jumping back to Hebrews chapter 2, he says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Did you hear that? What we have heard. Have we heard the word of the Lord on these subjects? Yes. Is it possible that people who hear the word of the Lord can drift away from serving him? And the answer is yes. I'm sorry. Apologies to my Calvinistic brethren. But the word is not unclear. As sure as our, we can be sure of our faith, there is also the doctrine of apostasy, the falling away. Now listen to what he says. For if the word spoken through angels, mental note, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Folks, we have every reason not to fall away. Why? <laughs> because we have a great high priest who is the word of God, who is about to speak to his churches, who is about to say something to his body. And the message is consistent in John and Corinthians and Hebrews and the Revelation. I, I, I'm stressing this because there are people that want you to come to this book and feel like it's weird, like it's different, when it's just conveying the very same message we have been told from the beginning. We have every reason to not fall away. Again, I stress this for two reasons. This is the same message that our high priest is about to send to the seven churches. And secondly, this is the same message attested to by the rest of Scripture. The only question is, will we listen to the word of the Lord? I want to remind you just briefly of the prelude to the Revelation because as we get into these letters, we're going to see and hear numerous references to the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. I want you to remember what they do. They change the grace of God, which saved us from sin, into a license to sin. Listen to that as Jesus discusses the spiritual condition of the church. Secondly, they abandon the pursuit of the hunger for righteousness in the spirit of holiness in favor of a pursuit of the satisfaction of their fallen appetites for sinfulness. Ultimately, they give into the flesh. The flesh becomes the ruling appetite, and it leads them into all kinds of sexual perversion. Third, they lead people to reject the word and testimony of God's anointed ones. 
This is the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah, which I have uh, deemed the spirit of Antichrist because it's the exact antithesis of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So let's dive in to the seven letters. Now we're going to, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks here, and today I want to kind of do an overview um, of the seven parts of these letters. They all kind of follow the same format. There is, number one, a stated address. Number two, there is the stated author. Number three, there's a statement of awareness. Number four, there's a statement of acclamation, some kind of a compliment, something, you know, they're, they're acclaimed for doing something well. For others, there's a statement of admonishment, correction, a call to repentance, followed by a call to spiritual attentiveness, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the church, followed by the promise of the reward to the one who overcomes. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the letter to the church of Ephesus as we kind of look at these parts. To the angel of the church of Eph in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate men uh, and you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we're not going to be able to address all seven of these parts equally, but there's some things I want to say, and over the course of the next week, a couple of weeks, we will address these things. Let's look first at the stated address. Uh, there are two parts to this address. The first is to the angel of the church. The second is to the church itself. So let's kind of uh, look at this. Why are the church, why are the letters addressed to the angels of the seven churches? Let me just begin by saying any commentary you go to is going to discuss the fact that the word angelos can mean messengers or it can mean angels such as not divine beings but beings from the heavenly realm. And most people try to figure out whether it's those types of heavenly beings or earthly beings. And I think the answer is probably yes. The scripture we have already read today indicates the involvement in the bringing about of the word of God by angels. Yet we act like this is a big mystery. <gasps> Why is he sending it to the, to the angel of the church? Man, we've never seen this before. Well, only if you haven't read God's word. <laughs> because the angels were involved in the bringing about of the first covenant and the second covenant. The fact that the angels have this, this unique role as servants of the covenants of God to, to kind of the power base to bring God's word uh, to fruition and fulfillment, this is their role. So it shouldn't surprise us when the Lord, who is Lord of heaven and earth, and there are heavenly realities and earthly realities that are, that are guiding our steps, that he should address the church to the whole of the church, not just physical, but also spiritual. This really is not that big a deal, yet so many people spend a lot of time getting caught up in it. Now, here's, here's the thing. 
I can accept that it's both, maybe angelic and maybe earthly. So that if, if, if the earthly meaning that the burden of these letters falls on the shoulders of the leadership, and I think that's a fair application because we're gonna see that it's the leaders who often lead the people astray. So I can accept the dual use. What I cannot accept is that it's only earthly. Why? Because of the rest of scripture where angels are the implementers of the covenants of the Lord. And as such, they are the power. I would say they are literally the scepter in the hand of our Messiah. Remember Shiloh? The one who comes to whom ultimate kingship and power is due. And how do we see Yeshua? The one who is holding the seven stars, the seven angels, the implementers of God's word in his hands. I won't accept less. If you just want an earthly messenger, that's fine. But this is a moment when God is speaking to us both physically and spiritually. He's speaking to the whole reality in which we live. And I'm thankful for that because sometimes if you only focus on my physical reality, it can get pretty depressing. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe you're looking back at your week going, man, I kicked that one. I had some good days, and I had some days like, do over, mulligan. <laughs> let's, try, let's try that one again. I love some of the lyrics and the songs that talks about that moment when you fall between where you want to be and where you are. That's where God's grace rescues us. I do also accept that the burden of these letters should fall heavy on the hearts and minds of those who are called as leaders in the body of Christ, but it should also cause the body of Christ to be more discerning about those we listen to as our leaders. Amen? The Bible clearly indicates the role of angels, as I said, in bringing about the first covenant. So let me just share a couple thoughts about this. As I said, for every earthly reality, there's a heavenly reality. If there's an earthly messenger for each church, then there is by design a heavenly one. That being the case, it is fair that the burden of these letters is directed at the leaders. The involvement of angels uh, really is, is helping us to understand that these letters point to something that maybe we miss. And that is that these letters are signs. All right, and, and I want you to think with me back to Romans chapter 1. Uh, if you haven't heard this message, but if you go back to Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the power of the gospel. He's unashamed of the power of the gospel, for in the gospel there is a righteousness that is revealed. The gospel is a revelation of a righteousness that's apart from the Torah. It's actually greater than the Torah. That's not to demean the Torah. Yeshua is the living word, but in God's design, Yeshua, is the greater revelation of righteousness. Now, that revelation happens in a person's life where? Internally. It starts on the inside, and it has the power to conform us, to transform us, to change us. And even though you may not have had a great week, you know, maybe you fell in the flesh here and there, look back a few years, you're probably way beyond where you used to be. Amen? 
And that's the transforming, sanctifying work of the gospel. The gospel works within us to conform us and transform us in the image of Christ. And that means sometimes I have to fall, I have to fail, so that I can finally find myself face to face with the Lord where I need to be. So even my failures become his opportunity to grow me internally into the person he wants me to be. That being said, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 to describe the revelation of wrath. Well, if the revelation of the gospel happens inside a person who can begin to understand and discern truth, what does Paul describe the revelation of wrath when someone rejects God as what? The creator. Have you noticed how many times the writers and the scriptures keep making sure we understand that all things came into being through Yeshua? Because when you reject him, you're rejecting the creator. And Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 18 through the end of the chapter, is telling us what happens in the mind. How does wrath manifest? We lose our capacity to think. We lose our capacity to, to reason. We lose the, uh, the capacity. Now we don't have two genders. We have 72. Someone flunked math. Someone flunked biology. We have, we have a person sitting on the Supreme Court of this nation, the highest court in the land, who's supposed to be able to discern truth and right, who couldn't answer the question, what is a woman? And she's a woman. This is the revelation of wrath, and it happens inside of us. It degrades our ability to think, and this is why we must keep our focus on Yeshua, because that's how he's going to manifest and turn us into signs. This leads us back to Genesis 1.14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. This, these letters are signs. You know, everybody wants to look at the signs of the times. Yeshua gives us seven letters and says, look what's happening in my body. You want to know where you're at? Stop looking at the world and start looking at the body of Messiah. Because in some ways, that's more terrifying than what's happening in the world. Just being honest. Because it's not just people in the world who have lost the ability to think. We, we have people constantly, teachers, trying to tell us that Yeshua is less than instead of greater than. Trying to reframe, redefine, reanalyze Yeshua to make him less than everything that John, Matthew, Paul has revealed him to be. God's own testimony is being rejected about who Yeshua is. That's how bad it is. So he starts with a stated address. Now, I want to throw one more thing in here for free. This book, this revelation is sent to the churches. And after chapter 3, you're not going to hear that word anymore. But I have never received a letter in my life, especially a long one. If I got to page 2, I suddenly thought, well, who is he talking to now? I mean, it is crazy, the, the hermeneutics, the, the things people do to try to find a way to make part of the book they don't like not apply to them. Well, he didn't say church there, so it must not be me. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but 
this letter is for you from beginning to end. Amen? That was a weak amen. Number two, the stated author. Listen to how, listen to some of these from the different letters. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 2, verse 8, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. Chapter 2, verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Chapter 2, verse 18, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. Why not just say two Ephesus from Jesus? Because this is revelation. And the message that is being sent to each of the churches is directly related to the revelation Yeshua wants them to focus on in him. These letters will only impact us if we keep them in the full view of the authority of the one sending them. And that's why he gives us all these descriptions because this is the word of the Lord. I mean, we... (laughs) I don't know what it was like for John, but I'm pretty sure if you ever turn around and you see the voice that was speaking to you like a trumpet and you see what you're going to pay attention. And church, there's never been a generation that needs to pay more attention than we do right now. These aren't random thoughts. These are royal divine decrees from our high priest king, You know what the Day of Atonement was all about? Revealing the spiritual condition of God's people. How the high priest performed his service from that moment. There are traditions that that are told within Judaism that talk about how he was then, the Lord revealed to him what the spiritual condition of 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 Israel was. And what was his responsibility? Go make it right. Send messages to all of the uh, children of Israel in the diaspora. Make sure they know what God is saying to and through his high priest. These descriptions seal his authority. Let me move on to the next one. There's a statement of awareness, and I love this. This is so encouraging. Jesus makes it clear in the vision that John sees of him that Jesus is also the one doing a lot of seeing. He is intimately acquainted with what the reality is that's going on in our lives. You know, I just love this because it makes me think of Cornelius. Remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Peter tells him, your alms, your giving, your charitable giving for the sake of God's kingdom, your prayers have ascended. God has taken notice. Now, I want to ask you something. If God has taken notice of one Roman soldier's prayers and acts of righteousness, why do we think he's not paying attention to us? This is why we're victors. Because the revelation shows the master is where, you know what, you know what he's so aware of? He knows when you're in, in a season where it's, it's not so challenging. Things are good. The money's coming in, everything. You know what? He knows when the money runs dry. He knows when there's relational battles going on in your family. 
He knows when you've been wounded by someone in the church. He knows when physical ailment, he knows. And he cares. That's the message. So he, he makes this statement that he is aware. That is followed by one of two things. Either a statement of acclamation that, uh, you know, some people a compliment they need to know hey I've taken notice like Cornelius I, I've, I've, I've taken note of what you're doing in, in one of the verses in one of the letters I love it that Jesus will say to the church but but I know this you're you're doing more than what you did at first man I love that don't you want God to know that okay I've I've been riding the pine a little bit I'm gonna I'm gonna try to re-engage Sorry, I've kind of taken, you know, a perpetual sabbatical, you know, <laughs> I've, I've been on vacation for a while. Hey, Lord, I'm going to re-engage. This is new to me. Guess what? He knows. He's aware. Well, it's not, it's not such a big deal. He doesn't care. He is aware that you're trying. There's a statement sometimes of admonition. The downside to him his knowing and being aware is that that can mean some, that he knows what's going on that's good in our life, but he also knows the other side of that coin. And there are times when people just have to flat be told, you need to straighten up. This is not okay. This is not what I have for you. I have something way better. You are letting the spirit of Antichrist have its way in your life because you've gone narcissistic, you've gone selfish, you've, you've gone inward, you're no longer going outward, and nobody is experiencing the power of the transformational gospel working through you to them because you've turned inward. And that's not okay. You have forgotten your first love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is equal to the first, that you love your neighbor as yourself. I don't like my neighbor. Now, if one of my neighbors happens to watch this, I'm not talking about... <laughs> God says, I don't care if you don't like your neighbor. I didn't tell you to like your neighbor. I told you to love your neighbor. And sometimes loving your neighbor means loving the unlike the un. Unlikable, thank you for filling that in. <laughs> I, I, I'd have got there, but it had taken me a while. It's not easy, but God knows. And sometimes, and let me just tell you something. Have you ever been in a service and you just felt, man, that preacher was just stomping on my toes? Ever been there? You just kind of want to retract them? If that person is truly a spiritual leader, they don't even like talking about these subjects because the x-ray machine of God's word reveals what's going on in our life. And we know the burden of consistency, the burden of, it's not easy. And when we fall and when we fail, it doesn't just hurt us. We get that and it's a heavy burden. It's followed by a call to spiritual attention. You know, Ezekiel, <laughs> poor Ezekiel, was given probably the worst job description. God told him, now, Ezekiel, you're going to a people who should listen. 
I mean, you're not going to a people of a foreign tongue. You're not going to a people who are from a different religion. I'm sending you, I'm not sending you to Nineveh. I'm sending you to your people. They have every reason to listen. And they're not going to do it. Lord, here am I, send someone else. I, I, Ezekiel, you're going to be a great prophet of God and you are going to fail to change the course of Israel's destiny in their lifetime because they're not going to listen, but I still have to have you testify. My friends, in the last days, our success is not measured in whether we change the course of communities and nations. Our success is whether we stay the course of faithfulness. Amen? We're called to a people we should be able to reach, but some of them just aren't going to listen. This is followed by a promise to the overcomers. These are the promises made to people who overcome. And these are promises for those, quite honestly, the very fact that these promises are made to overcomers implies something that we sometimes miss. Um, if I walk up to this stage and I ascend these four steps, I'm probably not going to tell you how I overcame. Wow, Brent. You walked up those steps. What an overcomer you are. Oh, to be like you. But if I go, was it to Nepal, and I go up on a trek up Mount Everest, and I get to the top and come back, I am strutting my stuff. I overcame the mountain. I went to the mountain, and I won. You see... You're not an overcomer unless there's something in your life that has to be overcome. A uh, duh. These, the very nature of these promises are telling us that these are promises for those who are willing to be partakers of the tribulation, the suffering, the kingdom power within us, and the perseverance of the saints. Are you one of those people? Are you willing to listen to the word of the Lord when he tells you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Stay the course. Trust me. Focus on who I am. I'm the author and the perfecter. of my, my faith is worthless. Mine was perfect, Jesus says. Focus on me. These are the seven parts, and there is a whole lot more that I was going to get into today, but we're going to wait because this is enough for us to digest today. I just wanted to kind of give you an overview of, of how these letters are structured because they'll all follow the same structure. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at some of the, 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 I want us to track out the spirit of Antichrist and how it is referenced in these letters. That's not going to be much fun, let's be honest. But then I also want us to track out the promises of reward for those who overcome by the word of their testimony in the blood of the Lamb. 
Because I want us to receive. Because you know what? These letters are signs. What you see act in churches and in people, you'll see these things in people, and it'll be a sign to you. You see narcissism in a leader, it's a sign to you. But guess what? The church is also a sign. We have a role to play as being a witness to the world about the transforming power of God's word, the gospel in us. We're not coming to this book just to learn about signs. We're coming to this book to learn how to be signs and testimonies of the faithfulness of our Savior. Amen? I'm not sure who I'm supposed to turn it over to. But I'm done. So since I don't see them, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'll just close with the benediction that I love from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Everybody look at each other and say, you means you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless with great joy. To the only God our Father and to Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and honor forever and ever. Amen. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. As we go, may we be a light to the world. May we be a sign to our communities and our families. Have your way within us. I pray this, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.